Hello, and welcome to the eTech Podcast with me, your host, Ryan Morn. I have been involved in the development of electrified vehicles and machines since 2005 as an engineer and a business leader. This podcast is the product of my passion for electric and autonomous vehicle technology. I'm here to share knowledge from some of the world's leading experts, as well as my own insights. Join me as we accelerate the transition to cleaner, safer and smarter vehicles and grow the industry around the world. Welcome to the Avid Technology Podcast with me, Ryan Morn. Uh, Today we've got a really interesting episode coming. Um, I've got with me... uh, via the wonders of the internet, uh, Gerard Barron, who is the CEO of an absolutely fascinating company um, in a field which is going to be quite important potentially in the future for uh, electric and hybrid vehicles. Uh, Gerard has a a business called Deep Green Metals, and they are looking at uh, really sort of sustainable, environmentally friendly ways of recovering um, specialist metals from the ocean. So uh, welcome, Gerard. Thank you very much, Ryan. It's a pleasure to be with you today. I just wonder if we could start, Gerard, with a bit of background on your good self, if you could uh, tell us where, where you've come from and, and how you've got to, uh, to, to where you are today. Yeah, happy to. So, um, well, I'm, I'm Australian. Grew up in, on a dairy farm in Queensland and was always destined to be an entrepreneur. I, I started my first company at university um, many years ago now, and I've been lucky enough to, to build some great companies since, ranging from making automotive batteries in China in the early 90s and built a distribution network around Europe and, and into Australia, which I, I sold that company back to a Chinese corporation and had a telecommunications business um, in Australia, which sold to Singtel, and then I started a, a software as a service business, uh, which in 2001, which is what brought me to London. I had to grow the company, and it was either New York or London, and London won out. And you know, thinking I'd be here for a couple of years, and I've kept a, a base here ever since. And so, yeah. And then I, I, I wasn't, so none of that sounds much like ocean metals, yep. <laughs> um, but I was always a very curious investor. And so way back in 2001, there was a, a company started called Nautilus Minerals and a friend of mine uh, was running it and they needed some money. And I foolishly thought, yes, that's a great idea. Uh, made so much sense to me collecting metals from the ocean compared to ripping up uh, pristine, uh, biodiverse ecosystems. And so I agreed to, um, you know, underwrite some capital and help the company go on. They ended up raising a lot of money and floated the company. And I, I sold out soon after. And for me, it was an amazing uh, transaction. But it, what it's, its gift to me was it taught me about nodules because that company, Nautilus, were focused on sulfides. And Nodules are a very different resource, and um, and so then in 2011, Deep Green was formed, and I was originally uh, the provider of capital, and I I helped the company raise all its money. I wasn't didn't think I could run a resources company, but as I got more involved with the CEO that we had hired, I realized that actually 
maybe my skill sets were appropriate. And because um, this is a challenge of strategy and of communication and mm. and earning the social license. And I and I reached that time in my life. Uh, some call it a midlife crisis, but uh, it was just a time to reflect on you know what are we doing for the planet? How can we make a difference? And you know I knew that this was a big difficult almost impossible challenge and i like this and here i am so i i became chairman and ceo a few years ago and um yeah been having a, a hoot ever since and and just um so if you if you could just help me explain nodules um and 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 what they are and um and 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 what you do with them yeah well Firstly, the oceans are filled with metals. Uh, I think most people know that now. And they, um, they come in several forms. They, they, there are sulfides, like I talked about, and they really form where the tectonic plates meet, mm. like chimneys underwater. And then you have these seafloor crusts, uh, which are molten that, that spews out of the core of the earth and spreads over very large areas. And we're not focused on those because to, to recover those metals, you need to go and mine them. You've got to go down with big, nasty machines and turn big rocks into little rocks and pump them to the surface. And then there's a third category. And the third category are polymetallic nodules. And nodules grow a little bit like a pearl grows. They precipitate the metals that are both in the seawater and also are in the sediments uh, on the seafloor. And think of them as a pearl, how a pearl grows. And so they're found in a variety of locations. They were discovered way back in the 1860s uh, by an expedition, HMS Challenger, funded by the Royal Society. And they wanted to know what lay on the bottom of the ocean. And so <clears throat> with the benefit of the steam piston that had been developed, they sailed around the world with a dredge off the back of the boat and they recovered these nodules from, from a variety of locations. But it's the, the area known as the Clarion-Clipperton zone that's most interesting. And that's because it benefited from the runoff from the Rockies and the Andes. And so all these metals and minerals were deposited in the seawater and on the sediment and provided the feedstock for these nodules to grow. And, and if I was with you, I'd, I'd hand you one. Think of it as the size of a potato. Okay. So large potatoes and uh, small potatoes. And uh, they literally just sit on the ocean floor. So a very unique resource. And so we don't have to drill or dig for them. They, we have mm. to collect them. And that's where, because actually un, it's the sort of underwater mining industry, ocean mining, is it can be a bit controversial, can't it? You know, pe people I think yes. have quite negative uh, perceptions of, of um, you know, like, like you said earlier, kind of big machines and... Um, yeah turning big rocks into little rocks and, and all the rest of it. But the, these are lying abundantly? Abundant in some areas. Right. And so you need a specific breeding ground um, or, or production area. And that that's based on um, the depth. So we're about 4,000 meters below sea level. And um, and you're right that, that there are opponents to doing anything in the ocean. And I, I it's... I can understand why people can at times be skeptical because we've seen what land mining has done to the planet yeah. and it's been pretty horrible. 
Yeah. And so people may naturally think, well, I assume it'll be the same horrible mess in the ocean. But, mm. but it's, in fact, I believe, we believe it to be the exact opposite. And that, you know, Mother Nature made this very large resource, this very large abundant resource. And in these nodules contain all of the, the metals we need to build batteries. And of course, now we want to move away from fossil fuels. But when you look at the impacts of us doing that, we're going to need to build hundreds of millions, maybe billions of batteries to put into our cars, to put into our homes, uh, to build the renewable power stations and the storage off the back of that. And that's an entirely new demand category. And the question for society is where should we get that from? Yeah. And that's what, what kind of metals are in, I mean, is, is there a particular kind of metals that you would find in the nodules or is it a, a sort of fairly broad spectrum? Yeah. So um, not all nodules are made equally, <laughs> but in the clarion clipperton zone, think of them as an 811 NMC battery in a rock. Oh, wow. So, Ryan, I know you know the uh, the electric vehicle industry well, and you, yeah. you know that the <clears throat> battery cathode is pretty well settled around NMC. Yeah. And more manufacturers are moving to eight parts nickel to one part cobalt, one part manganese. And amazingly, these nodules have eight parts nickel to one part cobalt. They have a lot of manganese, and they also have a lot of copper, which we're going to need a lot of yeah, yeah. for the green transition as well. So, you know, it's a very appropriate and abundant resource for the era that we're about to move through. Wow. And I, I guess you mentioned earlier they're at 4,000 meters uh, yeah. depth. Yeah. So yeah. they've uh, – we've only – I mean, do, do we – I was about to say we've only just developed the technology to, to sort of go and find these things, but I don't even know. How, do we have the technology to go to 4,000 meters and recover? Um, well, the good news is, yes, we do. And right. um, if we wind the clock back a little bit, so back in the 1860s, um, HMS Challenger went looking. And then in the 1970s, the industry started to collect these nodules. So they... They built the Glomar Explorer. Many people will know that name. And the Glomar Explorer uh, was the, the vessel upon which ocean metals were about to be, become a new industry. They, they built there were four different consortiums, and many of the great resource companies were involved, Shell and Rio Tinto and Lockheed Martin, Mitsubishi. Right. And they built these harvesters that went 4,000 meters underwater, and uh, if, you, if you go online, you can find references to them on YouTube. And basically, they, um, they proved that the technology was there. But way back in the 1970s, it hadn't been agreed who owned the oceans. And so it wasn't until 1982 that the United Nations Convention of the Law of the Sea was finally agreed. And so... What happened to those pioneers in the way back in the 70s is they had to stop what they were doing. The United Nations basically said, no, you cannot claim this part of the ocean. And so without security of title, they had to put it down to an interesting experiment. And of course, the mining companies went looking for resources on land and the oil and gas companies went looking offshore for more oil and gas and so on. And so... Yeah, it's, it's interesting that it's taken all this time and now we're on the doorstep of the industry being 
open for business. Wow. I have just done exactly what you said and uh, gone to look for the Glomar Explorer. And uh, wow, I, that looks like the kind of thing that there'll be a movie made about uh, at some at some point in the future. Or maybe there even already has been a movie made about uh, a tale of well, uh, secrets. As, and... if it, as if it wasn't an exciting story or enough already, there's one more exciting element, and that is that the CIA were originally involved because mm. they were trying to recover a sunken Russian submarine. And the U.S. had listening devices in the Pacific Ocean, and so they they picked up a, a stress alert from this Russian sub, so they knew where it was. Mm. But they needed a cover to go looking for the submarine, and so they said, aha, let's go and collect those nodules. And so Howard Hughes was involved, and it's a, the BBC recently published an article about it, and... Uh, yeah, and there has been a movie made about it as well, which is available on Netflix. So, yeah, wow. it's fascinating. I'll have to check that out. So, and the, the technology that um, you you're using now or, or proposing to use is it the same kind of recovery technology, or is it? Uh... You know, it's it's amazingly similar, and right. um, but of course, let's think what's happened since the mid 1970s. The offshore oil and gas industry, you know, has gone further into deep waters the cable lane and trenching and pipeline industries in the deep ocean have become very very big industries and so you know the technology available to us today in 2020 is significantly enhanced compared to what was developed back in the mid-70s and and to that point some of our shareholders come out of that industry we have um, Maersk, the shipping company, but who are also very diversified in drilling and um, and offshore oil and gas services. And we also, uh, last year, struck an arrangement with a company called All Seas to invest in the company and also to help us build our pilot mining system. And All Seas are one of the um, most highly regarded and largest layers of pipe for the offshore oil and gas industry. And um, we're very pleased and proud to have them as our partners on this project. Wow, brilliant. So so basically, um, then the, the, there's a the potential to recover vast amounts of um, the, the, the right kind of materials in a f- from these nodules from from the ocean floor in a manner that is, I mean, you know, is it, how from a sustainability point of view, like, Ha, ha. You know, it's, yeah. it's difficult one, isn't it I, I guess because i so we, we were before we got started recording we, we were sort of just sharing stories and I, I grew up in the northeast of england and uh you know coal mining was actually my family's thing so i kind of spent a lot of time in open pit mines um open cast mines up here in the family business my uh the the, the business was located underneath a big coal pile of a coal-fired power station um you know, I, and I look at wind turbines as things of beauty because compared to coal power stations and coal mining, you know, but but they still obviously have a negative environmental impact potentially, and and a lot of people absolutely despise them. So there's a, yes. I'm I'm getting into this delicately because I know there's probably <laughs> lots of different sides to this, but from an environmental well, perspective, what's your what's your take? Well, let's not be too delicate. Let's let's face the facts. Every single thing we do on this planet 
has an impact. And collecting metals from the bottom of the ocean will be the same. Like I can, I can tell you why collecting them as opposed to, to, to mining for sulfides and seafloor crusts, I can tell you why collecting nodules is the best alternative, but it will still have an impact. Right. You know, if you're a, a, a lot of the organisms, uh, microorganisms that will, you know, live in the seafloor, we're actually just going to stir that up. You know, whether they'll just pass through our system and, you know, they'll come out the back end of it. But if you're a worm living or a sea cucumber um, that's sitting on one of our nodules that gets collected, then, you know, you're probably going to find, you know, the party's over. <laughs> and 4,000 meters below sea level is, it's an interesting area because, you know, we have thousands and thousands. I mean, one of our blocks is 75,000 square kilometers and we've surveyed all of it. Wow. And so, you know, it is called the abyssal plain. It's the most common environment on the planet. It just happens to be on the ocean floor. And so the abyssal plain. The abyssal plain, yeah. That sounds like, you know, kind of great holiday destination. <laughs> yes. In fact there is a uh, there is one trip review on, on the <laughs> uh, it's there's only one comma he said Man, it's dead out here. Nothing going on. That's right. <laughs> yeah. There's and not a lot happening. 75, did you say 75,000 square miles or kilometers? kilometers yes. 75,000. God, that's a lot. What's yes. the... we, have, we have three of those license areas. And, um, Do you know how people like to put things into context of football pitches or the, the multiples <laughs> of whales? What's the... <laughs> yeah. 75,000 square kilometers. What, 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 that, what would that be equivalent to? Is that sort of... Um, you know, that's a really good question. Scotland? Yeah, okay. So big, yeah. huge, yeah, huge big. Uh, surface big. area, yeah. Uh, okay. Very big. And um, and also there's not much food down there because at 4,000 meters, mm. um, you don't find large organisms. You'll right. see sometimes pictures about when people talk about this industry and there'll be coral, pictures of coral. There are no colorful corals in this area. There are no... You know, we've never ever seen an organism larger than my thumb right. down there. Like, there's not a lot of food now. Of course, there are microorganisms that yeah. might live on the nodule or live in the soils, and we're not being disrespectful to those. But let me go back to what we talked talked about, and that is every single thing that we do on this planet has an impact. And the question is. What's the alternative? What's the impact of where we get our battery materials from right now? And what we're in the process of doing is all of the environmental research. We have a, we have the world's largest ocean floor to ocean surface research uh, study on underway right now. Why are we doing that? Because we have to prepare our environmental impact assessment on what will the impact be, not just on the ocean floor, but all the way through the water columns. And so we're doing that work today. And um, but of course, what we do know, Ryan, is is what are the externalities of land-based mining? Yeah. You know, firstly, you know, if we think about those electric vehicle batteries, eight parts nickel, the number one country exporting nickel is Indonesia, and the nickel is coming out of the most some of the most biodiverse areas on the planet. I think. Officially, Indonesia is the third most biodiverse area on the planet. 
And so that means that we're ripping down our, our carbon sinks, who happen to be our rainforests. We're destroying species at an alarming rate. And these aren't worms that live in the soil because the land-based mining industry stops measuring things at about 40 centimetres. We're measuring things at fraction of a millimetre. And so when you see side-by-side -side comparisons, they're not really very fair because we're not saying, you know, these organisms aren't important. You know, that's why big areas of this CCZ, the clarion clipper zone, have been put aside in preservation zones. About a third of the area has already been put aside and it will be increased. So never to go there, never to collect nodules from those areas. And that's done as a precautionary principle um, just to preserve the area. But there will be an impact, but the question is, what's the alternative? And it's the dirty secret behind electric vehicles. And, and you know, we know the CO2 cost of producing a car, that cost trebles when you include the battery. Yeah. Three times the CO2 impact of making a car. It's three times bigger because of the electric vehicle battery. So, you know, we have to find a way of attacking that issue. We have to find a way of finding materials, the metals, particularly nickel and cobalt and copper, that has a much lower environmental and social impact than land-based alternatives. How and does that's what you do? How do these deep, um, deep ocean recovery technologies compare from a CO two point of view to kind of land-based mining? Is it? Yeah, I, I it's a good question. And we um, over the last eighteen months, we funded a a white paper because that's a. a a question that's not easy to answer. And so we funded a, a very extensive study that looked at a full life cycle analysis of the impact if we were to build a billion batteries, which is what the plan for the planet is. Mm. In fact, it'll be many billions of batteries when we include home and office, but we just focused on transportation. Yeah. And so a billion batteries, if we change, if we don't change the supply chain, so if we keep getting it from land, but we made allowances for that industry to become more efficient. We made assumptions that they'd start using renewable energy and so on. And then we looked at the alternative of collecting nodules and making battery materials. And if we include sequestered carbon, it means that you can build that battery and generate 90% less CO2 using ocean metals from nodules. And one of the main reasons is the composition and the very high grade of the material. Last year, in fact, in 2018, the average grade of copper mined was less than half of 1%. Now, wow. So, so just that 90%, 90% less CO2 just for the mineral extraction part or in uh, for the whole like, processing the it, it's from from cradle to gate uh, it's the uh, whole way through oh, wow. 90% less it's uh, and if we take away sequestered carbon mm. because you know when you dig up a tree and, and dig up the soil you yeah. unlock a lot of carbon so but if we take that away just the co2 gases we pump into the system would be 70% less so either number is enormous, right? Yeah, well, either yeah. number is enormous. And so um, but the main driver for that is the fact that 
that nodule, if I put it in your hand, every single part of it is usable material. Right. Every single part of it. Whereas on land... There's a lot of rock. <laughs> mainly just rock. Yeah. And you've got to blast it and heat it and, and refine it. Uh, and you're looking for half a percent copper. Mm. So the other 99%, you've got to do something with, right? And then you've got to get to the ore body. You know, you've got to move all the overburden aside. Yeah. And then just to get to it. And and so, look, it's, a, it's an industry that... that so, sorry, just to jump... Uh, we, I, I, initially started the question asking about co2 um but then often you know i think the co2 tends to relate not not always as obviously as i think it should but tends to relate to the cost you know the embodied co2 in a product tends to kind of relate to the cost of it so does that mean actually these materials can be more cost effective than land based in in terms of the extraction cost yeah, totally. I mean, we will we will operate in the bottom uh, quartile of the cost curve. Wow. And okay. once again, that's largely because of the very high grade of the material. And you just need to move a fraction of the amount of, of material to produce the same amount of metal. And so wow. if, if we were to, I mentioned la, 2018, the average grade of copper was less than half of 1%. Um, as you know, our nodules have nickel and cobalt and copper and manganese if we were to put all of those materials into copper equivalent just so we could do a side-by-side comparison our grade of copper would be uh, more than 6.5 percent so so much higher grade material wow that's amazing um it, it's uh, it says sound like something with a lot of potential in terms of solving one of those big conundrums around the um resource uh, availability um just to so this could be a completely dumb question but we've talked about nmc are are there any other kind of rare earth um metals down there or is it is it mainly is it just nmc well no there are there are rare earths in uh, all of the nodules and um and we may get we may change our process to extract those um you know in phase two but phase one of our development is to go after the battery materials. Yeah, and so yeah. it's a different process to extract the rare earths. Mm. And it's, um, and that will come at a, at a later stage from our perspective. And mm. so, you know, there are the, the important thing about the nodules and one of the, the other amazing things when we process them, we generate no tailings. And if you followed world events in places like Brazil, we've seen yeah. lots of tailing dams burst. And that's because those materials on land have lots of arsenic and mercury, those deleterious elements that that means you can't release them. You've got to store them forever. And we don't have those apart from very small trace um, signs. And so it means that we don't have to have any tailings dams. It means we get to use 100% of the material. And so... Mm. The environment is one angle, but but there are other there are other aspects to the environment. Not having any tailings dams is a really big plus because yeah. mining companies will find it very challenging to finance projects that have tailings dams because they have a they have a habit of bursting and wiping out lives and villages. Yeah. Uh, obviously, child labor is something that is still very um, commonplace, particularly in markets like the Congo. 
Yeah. And so, you know, we'll be able to guarantee all of these things. Yeah, people we'll love to show a um, nice uh, cobalt mine in the Congo as an argument against um, electric uh, electric yeah. vehicle powertrain. Yeah. yeah, that's right. Exactly. Yeah. But but there's an easy solution. And um, and the easy solution, of course, is let's go and collect these ocean metals. And um, so how... You, you mentioned earlier that you surveyed 75,000 square kilometres of ocean floor. I, the, the kind of engineer in me is up, is fascinated by how you did that. So so what what kind of technology is involved and what kind of effort is involved in surveying 75,000 kilometres at, uh, at 4,000 metres below? How do you, How on earth do you go about doing that? Yeah, so there's several methods, and one of them is um, uh, you use a multi-beam survey or, or something you tow behind the boat, and then you just literally um, go mapping. You know, you just run over the whole block, right. obviously using uh, GPS to make sure you know where you are. And then you put together, um, basically it sends a beam to the seafloor and it, it responds differently if there's a nodule there or there's not a nodule there. And then you add to that photography. Um, we did a lot of time last year and the year before on using automated underwater vehicles, which are they look a little little bit like a, a rocket um, in shape. And they go off the back of the boat and they'll fly up to three meters above the seafloor. So, so if it's four thousand meters minus three meters, these are taking really detailed imagery. And we do that so we can then uh, match the resource with the less intense imagery, but also so we can study the, the, the environment down there so we can yeah. get clear pictures of organisms. And then the final piece is we do regular box scores. And if you go to our website, you'll see, which is uh, deep.green, you'll find lots of videos of uh, box scoring campaigns. And that's where we correlate the different mapping techniques. And then we take a physical sample. This uh, machine goes off the side of the boat. When it hits the bottom of the seafloor, uh, a piston goes off and it, it closes. And we bring back an exact sample of the ocean floor. And we obviously study that from a marine life perspective, uh, study the soil, study the water weigh the nodules and test their grade so we can see if there's variance between one area and the next wow so it must be a huge amount of um huge amount of data that you've managed to collect it's it, I mean, it's amazing that you can detect things the size of a, a small potato <laughs> yeah on uh down at, at that sort of depth um quite but, but with much more reliability actually mm. because um if you imagine when you're trying to get a picture of a of a, a deposit on land, yeah. generally you have to drill holes, right? Because yeah. you're trying to imagine what it looks like. And and as you make the resource more certain, you drill more regular holes. Yeah. Whereas with ours, it literally just sits there on the seafloor. Think of golf balls on a driving range. Yeah, you know? even the... Um... I mean, the various kind of techniques for trying to see below the surface on, on land, the kind of seismic surveying and things like that. And they're all quite, yeah. there's a bit of an art to it, isn't there? They're not, they're not exactly exact um, in terms of the, the results uh, you get back. Yeah. So, I mean, it, the, the other question that pops to mind is that all sounds 
quite expensive. <laughs> um, so I don't know. As a business, how have you gone about funding um, this kind of huge activity? Uh, I know from my experience, it's hard enough. It's hard to raise finance in in uh, for sort of risky kind of high tech, high risk kind of projects. And you sound like very high tech, very high risk. Um, so how how have you how have you funded this? And and if you if you can tell me how much does it cost to get you to get this far? Sure. Well, you're right in everything you say. It's uh, it's hard raising capital, and we've raised 120 million dollars so far, and um, we're despite the difficult market conditions, we're about to raise a new round of capital, which will close in the coming months, um, including some of our current loyal shareholders participating. Um, but you're right, it's a, it's a big, expensive industry. But we're very lucky to have uh, an amazing group of shareholders. Firstly, as an entrepreneur, um, I invested. And, um, you know, in this next round of capital, I'm investing. Right. And so investors like to see current investors uh, stumping up. And so we have a lot of conversations. You know, we look for like-minded entrepreneurs. We look for people that want to save the planet. We look for people that, you know, are concerned about existential risk. And we look for people that are concerned about supply chains because, of course, China has done a, a very good job of securing the supply of battery materials. And that's a risk to developed countries. And so some people are, are in this because they, they like the idea of alternative supply. Yeah. And then, of course, we have our industrial partners like uh, Maersk and Halsey's, and they're in businesses that uh, have uncertain futures. You know, if you are servicing the oil and gas offshore industry, yeah, and we're at peak oil, and so that industry is oversupplied and will start to contract. Yeah, and so it's not a very cool industry to be in. And so, yet you have all this expertise, you have all these assets that could easily be redeployed, and so that provides a very fertile community for us to be talking to and so um you know but as we get larger you know we'll start to see the electric vehicle companies get involved as well i, I guess they're going to have to get through this um covid19 crisis we all are yeah. but <laughs> at the other end of it those companies need reliable supply of yeah. battery materials to be able to build the batteries to be able to sell their cars and provenance is going to become a big issue you know people don't want to be driving a car or using a mobile phone that's been built with the help of child labor or yep. has been built with the help at the cost of ripping down rainforests yeah so, yeah yeah definitely but such such that's it's such a big topic in the automotive space and the yeah. um the the oems are already all sort of trying to secure long-term supplies of of you know, fully built up cells, but then and then right down the supply chain, and and like you say, the provenance is, it's that's always been a massive. Well, not all, not always, obviously, but certainly my during my career in automotive, com- component provenance and making sure you've haven't broken any regulations and rules in the uh, production is so important to all of the major, yeah. certainly U.S. and European OEMs. You know. It's. Yes. Um, I think. I don't think people realise the lengths they go to to um, make sure all the relevant sort of um, their, their products are made using safe material. That's the 
They're all kind of uh, scared of those bad headlines in the future. But, you know, I can also <clears throat> give you a lot of certainty that even if you think you've got a grasp on it, and this comes from, you know, understanding the industry a little bit and also talking to those customers, they have no idea because even though you might be buying material out of a mine where you say, well, I know it came from such and such, it then goes into this massive melting pot that is China. And, mm, of course, yeah. they're sourcing materials from a whole variety of different vendors. And so, so, you know, I think supply chain provenance will be important. And, you know, as we go forward, being able to measure things and being able to guarantee things, I hope, will cr help us create a great brand, you know, a brand that, you know, using our ocean metals will be able to tell you how much CO2 we generated, how much water was used, because water is about to become a really topical issue for the world. Yeah. Uh, how much child labor we used. <laughs> None of <laughs> how many trees? <laughs> how many trees we cut down? I mean, and I think when you can measure something, other people are going to be consumers will go, well, why can't you measure it? And I mm. want it measured, and I want to know where all this stuff comes from. And so, yeah, is there? You mentioned China, um, and 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 also you mentioned rightly that the Chinese have been very aggressive in terms of securing their material. Mm. Oh, I don't know if aggressive is the right word. Fair, very proactive and uh, very long term in terms of their view on securing materials. Um, are, are, are they looking at what you're doing? Are you? Yeah. Uh, totally. Oh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah. They are. Um, China has secured three license areas themselves. Okay. And, um, so China, you have to be a sovereign or sponsored by a sovereign to have a license area because we we operate in what's known as the high seas. And the high seas um, is anything beyond 200 miles from your coastline. Right. So it's so about 40% of the planet falls into this category. And it's regulated by the International Seabed Authority. And there are 168 members. Uh, you have to be a sovereign. It's, um, in fact, it's 167 plus the European Union. And so, yeah, it's, it's, it's decide think of it as the United Nations. Uh, it's based in Kingston, Jamaica. It's, um, it's a very uh, democratic type organization that moves pretty slowly but very thoroughly and they are essentially the representative owners of of the high seas because um there's the principle of the common heritage of mankind mm. and that means that any assets that are in the high seas are owned by everyone and they should only be developed for the good of humankind and the benefits should go to developing nations and so on. So it's another exciting aspect of this project, actually, that never before has a, an asset been commercially developed that is the common heritage of everyone. Wow. That sounds uh, really exciting and interesting on one hand, but a, a potential political bureaucratic minefield on the other. Is it is it difficult to navigate in that system or...? you managed to uh, well we've been at it for a, a long time now yeah. and um it moves slowly but it's very deliberate and so i think that um i'd rather that because if you think about the developing world you know those governments tend to be you know challenging landlords because 
because they often change their rules. Um, sometimes they'll they'll place economic prosperity or development over the environment or the, yeah. the benefit of everyone. So I think having a central regulator is a really positive um, benefit of of this industry. Right. And so you know I'd rather that and a little bit more bureaucracy mm. than the alternative. So it's not quite the, um, the 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 wild west then. No, oh my god, it's the opposite. <laughs> it's the opposite in the sense that it's very everyone's being very safe. Right. I mean, if you think about offshore oil and gas or the mining industry, they all started before they were regulated, right? Whereas yes. we've been regulated forever, and we haven't started yet. You know, we won't start <laughs> commercial production until two thousand and twenty-three. And we'll have the eyes of the world on us every day. And I fully expect that, and I'm I'm totally fine with that as well. Wow. Um, so, a couple more questions. If if uh, yeah. I think we've still got a bit a bit of time left. Uh, in in terms of um, the, the the material composition, I think maybe you, you might have already answered this question, but just to just just uh, I'll try. Um, so, lots of people are trying to get rid of cobalt in particular out of batteries um be- because of the the potential co- you know cost social impact etc in um in mining uh, sorry cobalt i said copper didn't i uh, it's been a long day cobalt we're trying to get rid of cobalt out of batteries uh it, do you see changing material technology like that as a, a potential risk are, are you monitoring that closely in terms of what's happening with battery tech um What's your view on that? Yeah, look, I'm, we're monitoring it closely, that's for sure. And, mm. um, you know, from a – we don't see it as a risk. Um, we, we, we are hopeful that the, the world can slow down its use of uh, – or its mixture of cobalt in a battery because um, while there was a little bit of supply came online last year, you know, when you extrapolate out the most modest – transition to electric vehicles it's going to put lots of pressure on the cobalt market now if you look at you know some of the major auto manufacturers last year they were still making electric vehicle battery cathodes using one part nickel to one part cobalt Mm. so you know that's a lot of cobalt and so when people say they're designing away from cobalt you know we're still you know they're still going to have a, a the average battery for a small four-person passenger car will still have seven kilograms of cobalt in the battery cathode. Yeah, yeah, I guess so. it's a very important element in the battery mix. You know, it has a very um, high resistance to, to uh, yeah. boiling. So. I guess the and you still got the copper and the nickel and the um, the other yeah, elements exactly. as well. Mm. And let's think about copper. You know, copper is such a universally um, in-demand conductor. Uh, nickel, its main market today is to make steel, and yeah. so that is not going away. And, of course, the, the, the great discovery was that more density in the battery cathode gives longer life, and that's what consumers want. You know, yeah. they want to be able to drive a car and not run out of, out of, um, not run out of juice. Yeah. Uh, okay, Cool. So, so another question, which is completely different. <laughs> Sorry, no, uh, no kind of uh, logical sequence to my random thoughts here. But um, 
have you have you been out there yourself? Have you spent much time sort of out on on vessels um, in in the, the the areas that you're looking at? You know, I um, our boat is moored in San Diego, right? And um, the honest answer is, I I haven't actually been to the CCZ, despite the fact that um, you know I've invested. Yeah. You know, or a, a big part of my very, very small fortune. <laughs> uh, largely because an expedition takes more than six weeks. Right. Uh, I did go offshore last year when we had 60 minutes on the boat and um, we went out towards the Clarion Clipperton Zone, but we didn't make it all the way. And we, we went out and met the boat and came back in. Um, right. That was, you know, more for the story. It's um, But we actually get to, you know, I know the crew. We have the same rotating crew on that boat we've had it moored in san diego for a few years now um you know i know the crew very very well and we're virtually on it when it's out there anyway because of video and satellite coverage and um and of course you know it's it forms you know a very very important part of everything we're doing and why we're doing it and so um but you know it's a pretty busy old job running this company and um you know i'd love the luxury of six weeks off the grid out there but um we're kind of not at that stage just yet but you know some other lucky people in our team get to do that so was, and, and, and that well so what i was going to ask you is what what is it like out there i mean is, you know is it um i've never mm-hmm. been on a on a boat in in the the high seas uh, you know so see these kind of tv programs with like huge waves and all this kind of thing is it is it like that it can be both. i mean actually the pacific ocean where we are can be very very calm but it does have uh, cyclones that rip through it and mm. uh, you know we were we were dodging cyclones um on one of our cruises last year six six week cruise i think we had to dodge three cyclones you know they literally came through they were like a daily thing um, and obviously, you know, these boats can handle, uh, they have an amazing crew, nurse yeah. crew for us, and they can handle any seas that get thrown at us. But it's, um, it's generally, it's pretty calm out there. And in fact, if you go to our website, as I mentioned, www.deep.green, yeah. you will see some great little videos that our, our team have made, which just show you what life's like out there, you know, and, um, it's you'll be surprised at how calm it is and being the pacific ocean you know it's beautiful warm water not that we've ever had anyone fall in but (laughs) it's about 27 degrees celsius out there and rising unfortunately so yeah yeah go for a little little paddle uh (laughs) yeah four thousand meters i'm not sure yeah i definitely um i have a bit of a mental block when it comes to swimming in the uh in the ocean that's one of my uh i'm not afraid of much but uh i i can't i just can't get my head around it for some reason uh so uh just to to kind of wrap up then what what are you excited about so in, t- in terms of the what the future holds for you guys what's kind yeah. of uh, what's got you excited now look this is um some people are attracted to impossible challenges right um i don't think this one's impossible but it's a big challenge and you know what i'm excited about is just putting all the pieces of the puzzle together um i'm i'm about to you know get this conversation a little bit more on the front page because i i think there's a lot of irresponsible reporting that goes on about this industry and i think that 
um, some of the planet-loving NGOs uh, are behaving, you know, I believe, in an irresponsible way. Mm. Uh, it comes back to those choices again. You know, we yeah. we know that there are some impacts of going to the ocean. What we have to do is compare those impacts with the alternatives. And if you take an honest appraisal of that, there's only one place you'll go. There's only one place. It'll be you'll go to the oceans because – so I guess that's a big challenge. And, um, you know, it's one that – I'm motivated to win. Um, we've got an amazing team behind us on this project. Uh, despite the fact that we are a for-profit, I think it's fair to say that you know everyone's main motivator here is because they can see the benefit that this will offer the planet. And so, it's certainly one of my major motivators in life. You know, I want I want to look back and think this was a really cool thing to have done, and it helped address one of the biggest challenges that we're going to face and that is yeah. you know, where on earth are we going to find the metals to facilitate the green transition because you've only got to look at those NOx graphs that came out they've been published now very regularly showing emissions this year compared to the first three months of last year and yeah. it shows you what a what a, a green transition can do yeah. burning less yeah. less fossil fuels in our transportation our factories you know, can lead to lowering of of global temperatures. And that's what we need to do. If we want to avoid existential uh, risk through climate change, we have to make these moves. And, and I guess the other little bit of uh, relevance with what's going on at the moment is pandemics have been, you know, well known, you know, that there's a risk of pandemic uh, widespread disease. Yeah. And here we are, we're in the middle of the one. It wouldn't have been nicer to have had a little bit more preparation, even though we knew <laughs> the likelihood was high. And uh, I think climate change is a bit the same. Like the externalities are there for us to see. Temperatures are rising, sea levels yeah. are rising, species are going extinct at, at unprecedented rates. And so let's do something about it. So, yeah, yeah. I mean, it, the, the, the current pandemic, you know, so, so, someone said to me the other day who know, knows far more about it than I understand, but they, they were saying, you know, it's, it, it's a matter of of when, and and actually we well we've been well overdue for a while. Um, yeah. One of the interesting things uh, uh, from my perspective is that you know it should it should bring public health into um, sharp focus because of the you know the impact of air quality and, and underlying health conditions, um, respiratory issues, and such like. You know, it it it's basically if we want to build a more resilient society. We've got to start taking public health seriously, and then, yeah. you know, I think the trouble is so climate change. People start to get it now because they can see the immediate kind of impacts around them. But it is a bit like um, it is still, I think, a, a bit too abstract uh, for for a lot of people. Which is with pandemic, I, I think the trouble the last you know, ten fifteen years, it's abstract. It, it's it's not a problem until it's a problem, and and the trouble with uh, you know, climate change, it's it's uh, so. It, it'll be a much bigger problem than um, than this pandemic. Maybe not such such short and sharp, but um, sort of you know I've heard things like uninsurable planet by twenty fifty. You know, massive yeah. weather events and things. You know, which are getting more and more common already. But um, yeah, yeah it, it's just quite obviously everyone is obsessed with the pandemic right now, um, and yeah. rightly so. But then you know, I I kind of hope that 
we don't quite go back to business as usual afterwards that we do start to think you know what we've got to we need to we need to prepare better for these things we need to uh, put more effort in while we can you know mm-hmm. so, i hope so mm. right i hope you i hope you're right yeah, we'll see. Um, Let's hold you out a little bit towards it. You know? Yeah, well, and and hopefully, you know, I'm, I'm, I've been absolutely fascinating to, uh, talking to you, Gerard. Thank you so much for, for making the time to do this. Uh, it's definitely something that, well, I, I had no idea what a nodule was, to be honest. Um, and you've really answered all of my questions very well in terms of what it is you guys are doing. And, and it seems obvious to me, having spoken to you, the, the potential in it. So, you know, I, I really do wish you the best of luck and uh, and, and hope that uh, we, we start to see good, um, clean, low CO2 uh, products coming out in, uh, was it 2023? 2023. 2023. Yeah. yeah, thanks, Brian. I've enjoyed it. And for any of your listeners, um, follow us on social media. You know, we're, we're looking to build a fan base. Um, so... Come right. and follow us and uh, participate. Yeah, I'll I'll put some links in the show notes to um to your yeah. website and uh, and and your various social media things so people can um, can go and investigate some more. So that's great. Thank you, Gerard. Thanks, Ryan. So that's all we've got time for today. I have found that absolutely fascinating. What a pleasure to talk to Gerard and understand more about Deep Green and uh, and what they they are doing. As, as I said in the podcast, uh, we'll stick some links in the show notes below. So if you want to find out more about what they're up to, go down and, uh, and, and click on those and go and have a look. Uh, don't forget to, uh, to follow us, um, subscribe to our channel, uh, like this, share it if you found it useful and interesting. Um, we've seen our uh, views and listens and things actually rise massively in the last couple of weeks uh, people uh, are um, are watching and listening to our stuff as the, i guess they're stuck at home with with nothing better to do so uh, maybe you know someone who could benefit from listening to some of our podcasts or uh, or don't forget our youtube channel watching some of our videos on uh, on youtube so thanks very much for taking the time to listen to us today and i look forward to talking to you again soon